Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? I'm great. Welcome back, everyone. So let's just go ahead and move on to the Come Follow Me. But before we do, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, Derek. So we are in the second part of the war chapters. That is Alma chapter 53 through 63. So we're basically going to finish off the entirety of the book of Alma with today's show. Is there any kind of theological, literary, or historical context that you want to give to these chapters before we dive in or even discuss No, not before we start. Yeah, let's talk about the the stripling warriors for a second. And I want to talk about all of these chapters together based on the genre of personal journal narrative with embedded first-person documents. I feel that the text invites curiosity. It invites speculation because the first-person narratives know we're only getting one view or one side of the view, and it's an abridged view. We are supposed to fill out the details and wonder what the rest of the story is. The text is meant to be wrestled with. The text is meant to be grappled with and interrogated. So I'd like to begin to explore the story of the mothers of the stripling warriors from a feminist approach. I mean, (laughs) just pointing out the obvious, you're a dude, so how are you going to do this? So that's a good question. So let me step back and say that I can't speak for women. What I can do is interrupt the patriarchy as best I can from where I stand. Okay. I definitely can disrupt and disobey the assumption that men in the text should be centered in our interpretation of the text. True. And I will make mistakes, but as Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh says, if you're going to make uh, you're going to make mistakes. So if you are, start now. <laughs> Do it anyway. Big and facts. along the way, I'm holding myself out as accountable to women when I make mistakes. And the main direction of my approach will be this. Instead of using the stories of women as a tool for telling the stories of men, I'm going to flip that around. I will use the stories of men to try to recover what the women would have said about themselves. So much of our culture assumes women are supporting characters in the stories of men. I'd like to affirm that women are not supporting characters in human civilization but they are the heroes of their own stories. Okay then. So uh, how does this... uh feminist interpretation work then when the uh, when the text is so male-centered? Yeah, that's a good point. I'm going to draw upon Elizabeth Schussler-Frierenza, and she wrote a landmark book called In Memory of Her. And she really focuses on the New Testament, but what she says applies equally to the Book of Mormon, another male-centric text. Here's what she says. If the silence about women's historical and theological experience and contribution in the early Christian movement is generated by historical texts and theological redactions, then we must find ways to break the silence of the text and derive meaning from androcentric historiography and theology. So what she's saying is, yes, if the text is silent about these things, we need to find ways of breaking the silence. She goes on to say, rather than understand the text as an adequate reflection of the reality about which it speaks, we must search for clues and illusions that indicate the reality about which the text is silent. 
Rather than take androcentric texts as informative data and accurate reports, we must read their silences as evidence and indication of that reality about which they do not speak. Uh, Close quote. Okay. So that was probably really complicated to, to just listen to and not I'm to read. I'm still processing it, but like talk about it a little but bit. But in, in a sense, what she's saying is, and she goes on later to explain that we must engage in an imaginative reconstruction of the role of women in the text. Like, yes, we've got male narrators, male characters, and male people that have preserved these records, and so they've left out a lot of what would have been there had women told the story. Mm -hmm. So what we can do, and we're obligated to reconstruct what would have been, uh, as best as we can, what would have been the women's own understanding of themselves and what they taught. And so that's what we're gonna do here is we're trying to read the text a little bit against the grain to say, well, if this is the result of something, well, then this is, must have been what happened to produce that result. And let me explain okay. here. So Judith Plasco, a feminist interpreter of the Hebrew Bible who's Jewish said, the silence of women reverberates through the tradition, distorting the shape of the narrative and skewing the content of the law. Mm. And Lynn Matthews Anderson picks up on this quote in her journal article toward a feminist interpretation of Latter-day Scripture, which is the method that I'm really using here. She states, women's infrequent appearances in Latter-day sacred narrative serve only to facilitate the telling of male stories. To paraphrase Judith Blask, Plasco, women in these male texts are not subjects or molders of their own experiences, but objects of male purposes, designs, and desires. They may be vividly characterized, but their presence does not negate their silence. If they are central to plot, the plots are not about them. Even the account of Lamoni's unnamed queen in Mosiah 1843 1843-1930 arguably the most powerful story involving a Book of Mormon woman, is a supporting secondary scene in the much larger story of the sons of Mosiah's proselyting success among the Lamanites, Alma 17 to 26, hmm. close quote. So yeah, that's basically what we're doing. We try to figure out from the silence what must have been there. It, it's kind of, does that seem backwards? No, no, no. Like this is actually similar. It rings true with what you said last week about the hermeneutic of suspicion. Right, exactly. It becomes then our responsibility to not just ask the question of what is not being said, what stories are not being told and why, but also to, as you said, reimagine what is not there. And we had that responsibility almost to, as you said, speculate the story that is not being told here because the silence speaks just as well the silence speaks loudly right it does it does yeah and so yes some of this will be creative and imaginative and what i'm about to do is not the only way to reconstruct this it's not there's no one right way obviously mm -hmm. so what you going to do derek yeah. How, what, what you going to construct what are you going to make for us so so here's here's what i'm going to do um i'm going to remind everyone that reverend dr fatima Saleh says that bad questions lead to bad theology <laughs> hopefully good questions lead to good theology too so let's ask the question about how we can use the stripling warriors to tell a story about the mothers. Oh, yes. Okay, yes. yeah. It's backwards, right? Especially, how can we do this without reinforcing the Latter-day Saint cultural tradition that the main point of mothers is to produce children and influence them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're up against that. 
Yes. We definitely don't want to pedestalize motherhood or engage in benevolent sexism. I got something. I got something, yeah. actually. Because like, this is the only part that I can actually have something positive to contribute to with regard to creating these stories. Like, There is a bit of imaginative work that I've done on who the Stripling Warriors' mothers were. Because every Mother's Day in sacrament meeting, again, this is coming from just my background as somebody who's been a member of the church for my entire life. Every Mother's Day, there would always be a talk that inevitably would speak of the mothers of the Stripling Warriors. And that's fine, but I was always a little bit let down with the lack of imagination and lack of positive modeling that I really feel the mothers of the Stripling Warriors Mm -hmm. can serve to us. So the first thing I did personally was I first imagined all of the Stripling Warriors' mothers, since they were Lamanites after all, or anti-Nephi-Lehi's is the name they chose for themselves. I imagined all of them as black women, because you know everybody nice, knows the nice. best mothers are black women. Everybody knows this. So that's how I imagined them. And because they were such an influential people in the Book of Mormon and such a profound conversion story and example of faith, that is what worked for me. But beyond that was their response to their sons in particular. I found models for so many different women in my life as a result of this story. There's a a couple things I really want to bring out here. Now, first of all, was we have to remember who these women were. Look at what time period this was. This is about 60-something, 65 uh, BC that we're in. So this is only like at most, at most, 25, 30 years maybe after the events of Alma 17 when we get the conversion of the Lamanites. So we're not very far removed from the story of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. These, again, are their children. Like, Abish is probably still around here. Probably one of the mothers of these kids. I don't know, but I like to imagine it as such. So that's one thing we want to remember. Second thing we want to remember is that these mothers, all the anti-Nephi-Lehi's from this previous generation, took a covenant of peace, made a covenant of peace. I bring that up because these are women who would much rather suffer death than torture at the hands of their enemies before actually engaging in war. Yet, they allowed their sons to go to war because they were moved with compassion for those who were dying in their behalf. Now, this made me think of... uh, you know, all these women in my life. It made me think of my mother. It made me think of, uh, you know, Cheryl and Evan Smith. It made me think of Jill. It made me think of Becky. It made me think of a lot of people that have LGBTQ uh, sons and daughters. And, you know, I don't mean to like mm-hmm. take that conversation from you for a bit because, you know, you probably derived that too. But I just wanted to bring that out because there's something beautiful in acknowledging that there are parents who have fundamentally different beliefs about what it is to follow Christ from their children who have different ways of following Christ. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? You know, having just read uh, Evan and Cheryl's story, they're not much older than me. In fact, they might even be younger than me, actually, now that I think about it. And they got, you know, four kids. They got a gay child. And um, I bring them up because they, like us, grew up in an era era where homophobia was the norm. It was socially acceptable to be a homophobe. Yet we have all these people our age and older who are 
trying their best to live their covenants while also still loving their children. And they're slowly realizing that those two things are not mutually exclusive. And that's what I see with these mothers of the stripling warriors. They are honoring their covenants in their support of their children, even though many of them did not initially understand what that looked like and what that would be. So I just see a lot of women who are honoring their children's way of honoring their covenants and of following God. So going to war for these uh, stripling warriors, it meant a different belief system, war instead of pacifism, a different lifestyle. They actually started calling Helaman father and lived in army camps and a fundamental break with the, with the uh, traditions of their parents. Yet what we get out of the story is that the parents of these boys loved them. They were proud of them and they saw that they applied gospel teachings to their life choices, even though those life choices were dramatically, dramatically different different from what the parents chose for themselves. And we would see this later in the story when we see provisions from the parents right. coming to the children, coming to the stripling warriors. So this isn't a passive support of their children. And that's, I think, all I can bring to this uh, feminist interpretation of the scripture is just acknowledging that the women in this story can be models for all of us, not just other women, but right. for all of us in terms of uh, loving allyship and probably more, but that's the best word I got for now. You know, you brought up a good point because yes, they saw their sons take a different path. Yeah. But anyway, this gets back to their experience as converts because they as converts took a different path than their parents, yes, right? Yes, they did. Yes, because they did. Because they really, in some ways, that would have been seen as a betrayal of the Lamanite belief system to yes. go over to adopting the, the Nephite yes. beliefs. Yes, So let's talk a little bit more about the how their experience as converts shaped okay. them. Cool. And like, it's good that you, you re, we were reaching back into Alma 17 to 26, and that really is rooted in, in Ammon's mission among the Lamanites. And like you said, the, um, the age of the stripling warriors shows that not even a generation had passed since right. the conversion of the parents. Right. Um, the mothers and fathers would all have been converts. It's probably not more than 15 or 20 years right, based on right. the age of these kids. And because these Ammonite women were converts, that shows that they had a vibrant personal testimony, not an inherited testimony, that they were open-minded, they were open to things that were new, and that they knew for themselves as converts. And I'm proud to be a convert, by the way. I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I get it, man. So now let's also remember that their conversion was sparked by miracles. Remember the reviving of King Lamoni and so forth, all yep. this miraculous, all these miraculous things that Ammon did. And mm -hmm. so these mm -hmm. are women who saw miracles, and they had a living faith that God is active and involved in the world. And they were mm -hmm. gonna, they would use this later when it comes to their kids. Yes, sir. Now they all they saw the divine origin of Ammon's mission, and thus they saw that God cared specifically about them in particular. Mm -hmm. In other words, they knew that God shows up in their lives. Yes, sir, yes, sir. If I could just for a moment yeah. bring up uh, James Cone and Black Liberation Theology. This is a point that he regularly brings up when it comes to liberation theology about the active role that Christianity, the mm -hmm. active role that Christ actually plays in the lives of black people. He is not a passive idea. He's not an abstraction. This is something, this is somebody that black people have actually seen work in their lives, similar to these Lamanites or these uh, anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They have not just embraced Jesus as a conversation or a passing abstraction. They have seen miracles. They've experienced him. He is an active part of their lives. 
Exactly. That's part yeah. of why their conversion was so powerful. And so as we can already see that there's a lot that if you read between the lines, we can reconstruct or recover a lot of what's going on with these women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here's another thing that we can reconstruct. They presumably trusted the leadership and witness of other women. Remember, we've got Abish, we've got Lamoni's queen. This is the same people that you know, you've already mentioned. Abish and Lamoni's queen were instrumental in bringing all of these people. You know, Abish was the one that went to everyone's house and like told them what was going on. Yeah. And, and if we assume that the Lamanite world was at least somewhat gender segregated, we realize that these women were very close to the action. Mm-hmm. All of the mothers of the stripling warriors would have known of or known been connected in some way to Abish and Lamoni's queen. Mm-hmm. And that means that they respected and and cherished the leadership and witness of these other women or else they wouldn't have uh, have converted. Right, right. Let's talk about them as, as converts, and this is a little bit imaginative, but I imagine that these Ammonite women were taught King Benjamin's amazing social justice sermon mm. because the influence of that sermon reverberated for centuries in the Book of Mormon. Mm. I also imagine that the Ammonite women were taught that male and female, black and white, Lamanite and Nephite, all are alike unto God. Mm-hmm. And how, how do I know that they were taught this? Well, I don't, but I... I'm assuming so because these sources are so unifying and so inclusive that any effective missionary would have used them to reach out to another ethnic group, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you're a Nephite missionary, you know missionaries, they always quote the same verses, right? (laughs) They know what works, right? Right, right. So thus, we can assume that the Ammonite woman would have had a foundation for the equality of all genders and all ethnicities in the tradition that they adopted. Okay. And one thing that we can definitely reconstruct is that the Ammonite women were not a monolith. No matter what the text seems to imply, we know that any actual group of women, not that I'm an expert on women, right, <laughs> for a number of different reasons, Yeah. Um, uh, we know that any actual group of women will be diverse and complex, mm-hmm. and we need to, to have that nuance. Um, there were certainly different levels of faith or different approaches to motherhood, There certainly were different socioeconomic situations, different access to education among the Ammonite women. Notice I'm calling them Ammonite women and not the mothers of the stripling warriors because I'm trying to problematize our idea of referring to these women, Mm -hmm. right? So that's what I'm doing here. And we can assume that they probably found strength and support for one another in that diversity because they had their witness in the end was so unified that Mm -hmm. all the mothers of these 2,000 seem to be on the same page with this. That doesn't mean that they were on the same page with everything else, but it means that their diversity was a strength to get them to that place. Mm -hmm. Now let's look at some of the impact on the sons in the text of Alma. And and we have to be careful that, I'm. yeah, we're gonna have to talk about the, the men in their lives because that's what the sources have. But we have to be careful to use the sons to tell a story about the mother and not using the mother to tell a story about the sons, mm, which okay. is really what the narrator was doing. But we're gonna we're gonna take this the other way. So these stripling warriors demonstrated initiative and self reliance. People might not notice this, but in Alma fifty three verses sixteen and nineteen, they assembled themselves unprompted by anyone. Like no one asked them to do this. They came up with this on their own. They also chose for themselves Helaman as their leader, as verse nineteen says. Mm-hmm. So what does this say about the mothers who raised them? 
The stripling warriors presumably saw in their mothers examples of initiative, responsibility, and doing what needs to be done without waiting for permission. Mm. Like if it needs to be done, you don't have to wait for permission. It, it needs to be done. And here's another thing. Um, this connects with something you said. We know that these women respected covenants. They respected their um, their husband's covenant of pacifism, their own covenant of pacifism. And they respected and even encouraged their sons to keep their covenant to fight for their people. Mm -hmm. From this, we can assume that they made that they made covenants themselves. Right. I don't know if the text says it, but that's what we're reconstructing. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, we can assume that they made covenants themselves and were valiant in keeping those covenants to various degrees, especially if it's true that they had this background about the egalitarian status that male and female are alike unto God. Mm -hmm. um, as it so clearly says, I don't know how people missed that in the history of our <laughs> church, but it's there. It's right. been there. Right. Um, we also know, oh, this is amazing. We also know that they, the Ammonite women, taught with authority, which means they had confidence in their own authority. Hmm. Obviously, they taught their sons something, but that really doesn't matter. What matters is they had confidence in their own authority. You know, men don't have to work as hard to get into the text. Mm -hmm. So whenever women are mentioned in the text, it's a really big deal. Right, right. And whatever they did, if they got in the text, is probably more important than 90% of what the men did. That's how, that's how impressive this is. Now, notice that the text says that the young soldiers were taught by their mothers, mm -hmm. not their fathers. What's that all about? And the fact that the mothers were mentioned alone means that on this particular teaching, at least, the mothers had a big impact apart from the fathers. Isn't that interesting? That's quite interesting. Because we know the redactional tendency, and redactional is a fancy word for the editor, okay? Mm -hmm. The redactional ten tendencies of all of these authors is to minimize the role of women and to say a lot about men. So whenever you see something that goes against the redactional tendency, of an author, it really is important. It really came from somewhere, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. um, now, you know what? We can even reconstruct, hypothetically, the exact words of the teaching of the mother. Isn't that great that we can get back their actual words? Yes, how are we gonna do that? Uh, yeah, Alma, do that? Alma 56 verses 47 and 48 says, they had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. And they rehearsed unto me, that is, uh, to Helaman, the words of their mothers, saying, we do not doubt our mothers knew it. Now, the words of the women must have been, if you do not doubt, God will deliver you. Let me say that again. Their words, directly, if you do not doubt, God will deliver you. Isn't that great that we have their words? Mm. Um, we can, oh man, those, I need to hear those words, right? <laughs> now these were, words were so important that they were repeated to Helaman, probably word for word, which is why I can be confident in reconstructing them. They said, we do not doubt our mothers knew it. And this also shows that the women operated from a place of knowledge and confidence. Perhaps it was knowledge independent of the men. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Uh, what's even more impressive is that the mothers apparently had independent access to God's will. Think How do about we figure it. figure that independent yeah. access to God's will. What the women taught isn't true in a general sense for all people at all times or all believers, right? Like, mm -hmm, just look mm -hmm. at the scriptures. Faithful people are killed and martyred throughout 
the records, right, you know. Right. So what they were saying isn't a general truth. And what they said was, if you do not doubt, God will deliver you. Mm-hmm. You know, that was true for Daniel. Right. That was true for the, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it wasn't true. It, you know, there's a lot of death. Even Jesus was killed despite the fact that he had perfect faith. Mm-hmm. Now, what this means is, let's hold this tension together and unpack it. What this means is that the women knew of a special case that applied to their sons. Somehow they knew that. How did they know that? This special knowledge had the promise of God behind it. Uh, Where did they get that? What this means is that this part of the women's teaching didn't come directly from the scriptures. You know, there's no promise like that in the scriptures Mm -hmm. for everyone. Mm -hmm. But this came directly from their independent access to God's will, independent of any man's leadership. Remember, the fathers weren't mentioned in teaching this. Mm And it wasn't any um, any previous male leadership in their scriptural tradition that taught this. It's mm. they came up with this, and they were right. Remember, these women were right. Let's mm-hmm. let's let's always remember that. <laughs> and what this tells me is that there were women prophets in the Book of Mormon, right? Women prophets who know more about God's will than the men did. And we have another clue later on about what these women taught. We've got in Helaman's letter, um, Alma fifty-seven verse twenty-six says. And now their preservation was astonishing to our whole army, yea, that they should be spared while there was a thousand of our brethren who were slain. And we do justly ascribe it to the miraculous power of God because of their exceeding faith in that which they had been taught to believe, mm-hmm. that there was By a just who? yep, that mm-hmm. there was a just God and whosoever did not doubt that they should be preserved by his marvelous power. Those words again. Yeah. So this is an additional piece of the women's teaching Mm -hmm. that God is a just God. And this formed the basis of their promise to their sons that whoever did not doubt would be saved. Now, notice this didn't apply to those thousand that that just died. The Mm -hmm. thousand of the adult men, they died. And Mm -hmm. maybe they were faithful too, right? Right. So the women had some independent access to something, right? Now, this is how we reconstruct recover and reconstruct the theology of the Ammonite women using the methods of Elizabeth Schussler Friarenza. Now, some people might say that this is a stretch or that I'm reading too much into the text. And like I said earlier, I would say that's not my fault. It's on the (laughs) men who preserved the text and didn't record enough of the teachings, theology, and lives of women. Mm -hmm. So the silence about women in the text ironically testifies to the damaging effects of patriarchy and prompts us to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, what I've said isn't the only way to reconstruct the theology of the Ammonite women. I'm quite curious how women today will extend our knowledge of women that are mentioned in the text and those that are not mentioned. So let me just, we, we covered a lot. So I'm gonna go over and just just highlight what we, all the amazing, like people probably haven't, I, I, I searched the literature on this. I haven't, didn't find anyone that really tries to recover as much detail about these women uh, as we as the text allows us to do. But here's what we've got. We know a lot about these women. As converts, they had a personal testimony. They believed that God was active in the world and cared about them in particular. They presumably were grounded in the leadership of other women, and they were formed by egalitarian text from the Nephite tradition. They were pacifists. They received personal revelation. They had influence and teaching authority, and they believed in their own authority. Mm. Um, They named how God shows up in their lives. They valued covenants. They set an example of faith. 
they supported their kids even though their kids chose a different path. Mm-hmm. They were allies. Mm-hmm. And they were not monolithic. But they also just demonstrated initiative, doing what needs to be done. Mm. They had independent access to God's revelation. Mm-hmm. They had the gift of prophecy. Mm. They had seen miracles themselves, and they knew that more miracles were in store. And the core, get this, the core of their theology from what we can reconstruct is that God is just and dependable. And they knew when and how that justice and goodness of God applied to their own time and place. And we've got some of their words. Their words were, if you do not doubt, God will deliver you. Hmm. That teaching has relevance to oppressed groups today. Yes, sir. Isn't that amazing how much we can get uh, from the text? That's incredible, man. I really like that. Yeah, I'm just so thankful that there are methods that are that we can use to extract from the details of the text what what little is there. A lot that would be, and obviously I, I, I'm not, I can't speak for women. Right. But the whole point of this was to interrupt the patriarchy that says that this is about men. Right. And we should interpret the text to be stories about men. Yeah. We should, and also just to normalize these conversations of making sure that men are able to learn these lessons from these stories of women. We're not conditioned to see ourselves in, and you know, in female heroes or in any kind of historical female figure, period. We're not conditioned to believe that's okay and we're not conditioned to do that in general. Mm-hmm. I remember being young and, you know, not completely analogous, but kind of. You know, you would see uh, young girls who would dress as male heroes for Halloween and that was okay. Yeah. But it wasn't okay for boys to do the same thing. We weren't encouraged to do the same thing because, you know, patriarchy, misogyny. I like having these conversations because it normalizes this idea of being able to see not just, um, Mm -hmm. well, being able to see everything, being able to see virtue, being able to see wisdom, being able to see heroism in these female characters whose stories we just do not have. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad that you took that opportunity, and I hope this can normalize conversations like this. Yeah, and you bring up a good point that patriarchy is bad for men, too. The fact that that, that Latter-day Saint men don't aren't allowed to learn from the example of women in the scriptures or or women in in their lives that's actually bad for the men like Mm -hmm. patriarchy really limits um what men can do it really limits what straight men can do like Mm -hmm. you can't walk down the street doing certain things i can do um because (laughs) what because i mean I can, but can. just society has not. Right. Society says that you're not supposed to do this. Correct. And if you do it, you're transgressing. And Correct. so there's things that straight man, straight men can't do that maybe they would want to do, um, such as be more affectionate with other men. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of straight men are, are starved of that. But anyway, let's get back to, to where yes, you want to go with this, uh, these uh, chapters. So um, you were right about the amount of time that was going to take, so I'm just going to move directly into uh, Alma chapter 60, Moroni's complaint to Pahoran. And I want to tell you guys what I found here. I found mm. several parallels between the struggle for black liberation and Moroni's epistle to Pahoran. So basically what we got here is Captain Moroni's armies have lost an entire city to the Lamanites, having not received their needed provisions or reinforcements after requesting them from Pahoran. And upon losing the city, the city of Nephiha, and seeing many of his men die, Moroni is mad, understandably, at Pahoran. He's mad at the government. Moroni's mad because a lot of people died, many lives could have been preserved, much suffering could have been alleviated, and a lot of energy, time, and other resources could have been conserved. But 
Because of the government's inability to properly address Captain Moroni's issues, the entire Nephite uh, way of life may be threatened. So Moroni opens his epistle by saying that his people have suffered all kinds of afflictions, including hunger, thirst, and fatigue mentioned in uh, verse three. So Derek, if you mm. got your scriptures here, I don't yeah. want to like listen to, I, I don't want to like listen to my whole voice, but yeah, I do want to okay. move on by reading these uh, verses and then discussing these parallels that I've seen in them. So Derek, can you read four and five real quick? Yeah, sure. But behold, were this all we had suffered, we would not murmur nor complain. But behold, great has been the slaughter among our people. Yea, thousands have fallen by the sword. While it might have otherwise been, if ye had rendered unto our armies sufficient strength and succor for them. Yea, great has been your neglect towards us. Okay, so listen to this real quick. The government's job in this case was to make sure that their soldiers had what they needed to fight this war. To, to defend their people's liberties, but they didn't, and lives were lost because of it. Likewise, we see today in our society, our government has a responsibility to make sure that the laws are enforced and that everyone gets equal protection under the law. It's actually written into our laws, but it but that too has failed, and lives are still lost to this day because of this very thing, because of this very kind of neglect that Moroni is speaking of. Uh, Derek, can you go on to verse 7? Can you think to sit upon your thrones in a state of thoughtless stupor while your enemies are spreading the work of death around you? Yea, while they are murdering thousands of your brethren. Okay. All this, all this suffering that black America is experiencing right now is preventable, all of it. It's been preventable, but what it hasn't been, though, is a priority to those in power. So let's, let's just move on real quick. Uh, verse 9, Derek. But behold, this is not all. Ye have withheld your provisions from them, insomuch that many have fought and bled out their lives because of their great desires, which they had for the welfare of this people. Yea, and this they have done when they were about to perish because of your exceedingly great neglect towards them. Okay, stop there. Black folks are fighting for freedom to death without the support of their own nation, the very nation which espouses freedom as one of its greatest ideals, if not the greatest ideal. And we see Moroni complaining about that same thing here. People are dying mm -hmm. for freedom mm -hmm. and they're not getting the support from their government to do it. And that's supposedly an ideal that they got. Uh, verse 10, Derek. And now, my beloved brethren, for ye ought to be beloved, yea, and ye ought to have stirred yourselves more diligently for the welfare and the freedom of this people. But behold, ye have neglected them insomuch that the blood of thousands shall come upon your heads for vengeance. Yea, for known unto God were all their cries and all their sufferings. Okay, so first of all, subtle little dig there. My beloved brethren, for ye ought to be beloved. Like I like what Moroni's uh -huh. saying there. He's like, it's, it's basically the equivalent of bless your heart or I'm a pray for you. Like Moroni <laughs> is acknowledging that this is how I'm supposed to feel towards you. I'm supposed to love you. And I do love you because you're my brother, but you are not acting like it right now. All the centuries of pain, dehumanization, death, dispossession, disenfranchisement, and otherwise otherization black folks have been forced to endure will need to be reckoned with. That is what's being said here. We have to reckon with that. Verse 11, Derek. Behold, could ye suppose that ye could sit upon your thrones, and because of the exceeding goodness of God, ye could do nothing, and he would deliver you? Behold, if ye have supposed this, ye have supposed in vain. In vain. Okay, mm. so 
This speaks to that point I brought earlier when we were discussing the, uh, the stripling warriors' mothers, the Ammonite women. We can't passively deal with the issue of racism. Too many so-called Christians are willing to acknowledge the existence of racism, but will not name their role in dismantling it. They'll, they'll say that stuff like God is the answer or the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer or the, a study of the gospel will change behavior quicker than a study of behavior will change behavior. I think that's Boyd K. Packer or somebody, Spencer W. Kimball. I don't know. It's in Preach My Gospel. I've yeah. read it a jillion times and I agree with it to an extent, but not in this context. And I think I, I don't think that people who utter those sentences in the context of racial tension and racial injustice, I don't think they really know what they mean. Look at verse 21. Derek, can you read that? Yeah. Or do ye suppose that the Lord will still deliver us while we sit upon our thrones and do not make use of the means mm-hmm. by which the Lord mm-hmm. has provided for us? Say that, yes. I've said many times on this show that the Lord is not going to expend his divine energy to do something we could easily do ourselves. The Lord is not going to wave his hand to fix racism. We are his hands. We are the ones that got to engage in that effort directly. There are things all of us can and must do to bring to the end to bring an end to the racial strife i was really proud of uh of us derek and also of many Mm -hmm. of our listeners i i got to attend as you did attend dr fatima's class called spit and mud the messy miracle of seeing christian racism and we got to see more than a third of the people that listened to this show were present at this event. Those are people that understand this. Our listeners, I'm very proud of you guys. Y'all get it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm probably preaching to the choir right now by saying this much, but I do want this vocalized, you know, just to make sure that it's out there and that there's no mistakes. Derek, go jump back up to verse 12. Okay, 12. Do ye suppose that because so many of your brethren have been killed, it is because of their wickedness? I say unto you, if ye have supposed this, ye have supposed in vain. Mm-hmm. For I say unto you, there are many who have fallen by the sword, mm-hmm. and behold, it is to your condemnation. Okay. This goes back to a point that you've echoed once today and uh, once on the show last week, Derek. But today you said something about how, you know, those thousands that died, they were probably righteous too, mm-hmm. and they probably did not die because they were wicked. There's two things I see here that need to be brought out. One is a myth of white supremacy, is that it is the, the, the disproportionate death and otherwise otherization of black folks is that we bring this mess on ourselves. Obviously, this is pretty racist thinking because to suppose that black people go to jail or are killed by cops more or obtain less success in the workforce or experience any other institutional disparity because of uh, because they're actually culturally or pathologically flawed is to suppose their inferiority, which is obviously pretty racist. The second thing I noticed is uh, something that you said last week about people who die from coronavirus, not necessarily because of their own failures to take caution, but because of others' failure to take caution. That's what we see here with Moroni and Pahoran. Moroni is struggling to maintain his forces because of the neglect of the government. That's not Moroni's fault. In fact, they were proactive on their part. They got the provisions and they prayed that they might be delivered. But, you know, who knows how much longer that's going to last. They rely greatly on the government for their support because their goal are supposed to be aligned but right now Mm -hmm. it doesn't look that way so um yeah just one more thing now uh what was that verse 12 yes okay let's go ahead and uh read uh, do i want to get all these verse yeah let's go ahead and read all of them let's do 13 14 and then 22 derek okay and now behold i say unto you i fear exceedingly that the judgments of god will come upon this people because of their exceeding slothfulness 
yea, even the slothfulness of our government, and their exceedingly great neglect towards their brethren, yea, towards those who have been slain. Mm. Verse 22, yea, will ye sit in idleness while ye are surrounded with thousands of those, yea, and tens of thousands who do also sit in idleness, while there are thousands round about in the borders of the land who are falling by the sword, yea, wounded and bleeding. This one really got to me for a couple of reasons, because first off, this is almost exactly what I fear with regard to any kind of racial reckoning. The idleness of those around us will consider idleness will encourage idleness on our part. We're not inclined to see the suffering of others when those closest to us act as if all is well in Zion. I fear it'll be too late when we finally do reckon with it because we've been dealing with this mess for 400 years and we still haven't adequately addressed it. In fact, even now, we still don't seem to really want to. In our, in our nation presently, even while there are protests and vigils and marches across the world, we have yet to make any significant changes in how our law enforcement officials administer the law. They actually seem super resistant to change, even if it is as small as increasing community oversight and accountability, decreasing broken windows policing, demilitarizing the police, increasing training standards and time, and more. In our own church, our, our leaders don't want to name white supremacy or police brutality as evils that need to be faced. We're... We're still moving too slow to address so much senseless death and suffering, and I fear our reckoning is going to be an ugly one because of this slothfulness. Uh, finally, um, let's just get to this to the end of this epistle real quick because mm-hmm. even though this is a good uh, place to end here, I do like how Moroni ends this epistle. So uh, 34, uh, Derek. Okay, and now behold, I, Moroni, am constrained according to the covenant which I have made to keep the commandments of my God, Therefore, I would that ye should adhere, adhere to the word of God and send speedily unto me of your provisions and of your men and also to Helaman. Moroni, based on his use of the word constrain, Moroni doesn't seem to want to have this conversation. I, 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 I don't imagine that any good person wants to, in essence, give their government leaders ultimatums that could potentially lead to the end of their lives. I certainly do not, and I don't think Moroni did either. Moroni himself will say in the final verse that he doesn't want power but to pull it down. He seeks not the honor of the world but for the glory of his God and the freedom and the welfare of his country. That's what he says. But he is constrained by his faith to take potentially drastic measures to protect the lives and freedoms of his people. His loyalty is to his God. Moroni is a real patriot, and he's ready to bring bumpers to his government leaders Mm, because, because his God demands much more his loyalty is first to his God. This is what civil rights has always been about. We have been making an effort to bring to people's attention the injustice of this situation because it's unjust to us, it's unjust to God, even if the government does sanction it. So we will disobey the government. And in this particular case, Moroni was ready to go to war against his own governor. He was ready to cut his own governor down, which is pretty cold-blooded for a so-called patriot to do. But this is what patriotism looks like. He was ready to, in the name of his God, bring down his government to make sure that his people had their freedoms realized. Because if Bahorn didn't deliver, if Bahorn didn't deliver, that would be the death of the Nephite nation right there. No provisions for the armies, no men. Everybody would get cut down, including those 2,000 stripling warriors. But 
That is what we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with somebody who's a zealot. We're not dealing with somebody who's like Nephite Nation, number one. Zara Hamlet's number one. Mm-hmm. We're not dealing with somebody like that. We're dealing with somebody who wants to preserve the life and freedom of everybody. And he wants to yeah. preserve their right to you know, worship their God. And that's what this is all about at the end of the day. Have you noticed that Moroni and I both want more men? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Why, Derek? <laughs> I yield my time. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, I, I, I really love what you said about all this, like using the resources of our tradition to give voice to um, what black folks have been saying all along, but in a way that people within our tradition could hear it differently. Yes, sir. You know, I mean, that is just a really powerful and brilliant use of the text. And I want to add that Let's look at Pahoran's response because Pahoran could have said, no, you're wrong, you're mistaken, and -hmm. and you're unjust in what you said to me Mm -hmm. and all this other stuff. He could have made it about him. But if you look at at what Moroni was saying, that he was he did this because of his covenants. Like Mm -hmm. he was covenanted to protect it. He was he needed to do what he um, the best he could with what he knew. And that's and so that it was not wrong at all to Mm -hmm. speak this way. To Pahoran. And I love how um, Pahoran just flowed with that and didn't condemn Moroni. And here's what Pahoran says in his epistle. This is verse 9 in Alma chapter 61. And now in your epistle you have censured me, but it mattereth not. L- let me say that again. It mattereth not. Mm-hmm. I am not angry, but do rejoice in the greatness of your heart. I, Pahoran, do not seek for power save only to retain my judgment seat that I may preserve the rights and liberty of my people. Mm-hmm. Look at what he's saying. He's saying it's not about me. Like right. I'm not looking for power. Right. I'm not looking for affirmation. I'm not looking for even the absence of criticism. And mm-hmm. he says that the epistle was done out of the greatness of Moroni's heart, mm-hmm. not out of any failing. Mm-hmm. So we should never criticize the complaints that people have right. when they are justified. Right. Or even when they're not justified, but they're very sincerely felt. Yeah. And so here's what, what I want to do with this is what this shows me is that we can hold our leaders accountable, not just government leaders, but church leaders. And when we do, they should not complain about it. Mm-hmm. They should actually rejoice that we care. We care mm-hmm. about the church. Like mm-hmm. no one's more passionate about the church than I am. Here's something that Charlie Bird said in his book that I am starting to read. He says that there's some people, some LGBT Mormons who love themselves and hate the church. There are others who love the church and hate themselves. Mm. And there's, there's very rare that you've got people like me that absolutely love the church and absolutely love themselves. Mm. And people should listen to us. I, I, it's kind of weird for me saying that because you you actually are listening to me right now. <laughs> but um, but here, let's let's go with that because in the church um, we have a right to complain. Mm-hmm. We are in a situation where straight men make decisions about the inclusion of women and mm-hmm. LGBTs in mm-hmm. the church. Mm-hmm. But no one talks about the impact this has on the souls of the leaders making those decisions. What if they treat us in an inhumane manner? If they do, it's a problem for them too. When members or leaders of the church make decisions about us, they are not deciding if we are fully human, they are deciding if they are. Let me say that again. Say it. 
when members or leaders of the church make decisions about us, they are not deciding if we are fully human. They are deciding if they are. Mm-hmm. I don't think I have anything that I need to add to that, but I'm going to anyway. Okay. Okay. Alma, or sorry, Pahorn's response to this whole thing is just so brilliant because he he doesn't make the like we read these words that Moroni said to Pahorn. They were strong words. They were impassioned words. Mm-hmm. There were straight up threats in there. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Again, Moroni was ready to go to war, and he you know insulted Pahorn's character or his supposed character. But Pahorn didn't take it personally. He didn't make it about him. He didn't. Um, he didn't tone police Moroni. You know what I'm saying? And this yeah. is so much what people are inclined to do when they are called out for their problematic behavior. Now, if your intent really wasn't to offend, then when somebody calls you out, you should be able to act like Bahorin did. There's no reason you can't exactly. act like Bahorin did. Because as soon as you start defending yourselves, as soon as you start making it about you, your intent becomes clear. Mm-hmm. Like as soon as you have to say the words, that wasn't my intent or anything like that, you've already lost. You've already missed the point. Right. Whether or not that was your intent, you have to pay attention to the impact. You have to pay attention to the impact of your actions or lack of action. And that is what Prohorn elected to do. He did not make this about him at all. He did not try to paint himself into a better light because there was really no purpose to be served in that. What he did instead was say, as you quoted Derek, it mattereth not. Let's get back on the same side. Let's get this program together. Here's what's going on. Now you know. Let's fix it. I'm on your team. We'll get it done. And you know what Moroni did? He marched straight away. He never mentioned it again. And this is what I need all allies to notice. When you mess up, your mess ups are not things that we dwell on. We in marginalized communities, we don't dwell on your mess ups as soon as you correct yourself. We really don't. We don't focus on that at all. And I find that my LGBTQ friends, my female friends, if I ever do anything to mess up, they correct me, I accept that correction, and they don't bring that stuff up again in the future. They don't even seem to remember it. I know I don't remember it when I have white friends that mess up when it comes to certain things. If they correct themselves, I don't tend to remember their mess ups because I'm more focused on their progress than I am on their flawed character Mm -hmm. that brought them to that position in the first place. So I need allies for a moment to take comfort in the fact that as Derek said, and as Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh has taught us, you are going to mess up a bunch, but we are far more interested in your progress than we are in your flaws. And you can take comfort in that. If you are somebody who's very self-conscious and very scared of making the wrong decisions or saying the wrong things or doing the wrong things, worry not. We care about your presence here. We care about your commitment to being better. We care about your commitment to the cause. We don't care about your mess ups. We will call you out and we will acknowledge them, but we are far less concerned with those things than I bet most of you think. Yeah, and that gets back to our exploration about a feminist approach to to these chapters is like I was nervous. I was like, oh no, I'm I'm not it's not gonna be good enough or I'm gonna people are gonna say it's not my place to say that or I'm gonna make a mistake or I'm gonna omit a, a feminist thinker that I should have quoted. That just like but my point is that I'd rather do something and and try my best than to just not do it anything at all. It is better to do something. And on that note, I want to move on to somebody who did something, Mm -hmm. and unfortunately, it didn't work out very well for him. We have discussed uh, Tiankum before, 
as uh, you know, one of the captains, one of the heroes of this war between the Nephites and the Lamanites. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Alma's conversation with Shiblon, particularly as it pertained to bridling all your passions. While a lot of people tend to interpret that scripture or interpret that particular passage to be talking about sexual passions, this could really be talking about any passions that lead us to act in a less than ideal mm-hmm. way. So let's talk about Tiankum real quick. Tiankum, in this particular chapter, this is chapter 62, we are still in the middle of this war. And then let's, let's just, let me just read 35 and 36 real quick. Therefore, they did not resolve upon any stratagem in the nighttime, save it were Tiankum. For he was exceedingly angry with Amaron insomuch that he considered that Amaron and Amalickiah his brother had been the cause of this great and lasting war between them and the Lamanites, which had been the cause of so much war and bloodshed, yea, and so much famine. Before we get into the rest of this story, whoever wrote this felt to mention how angry Tiankum was and why he was angry. These aren't bad reasons to be angry. It's not wrong to be upset that this war that has gone on for so long under false pretenses on the uh, Lamanites' part, it's not wrong to be angry about this. It's not wrong to be upset about all the bloodshed that was caused and all the suffering that was caused. Tiankum's indignation was righteous, I believe. But look at what he does here and compare it to what he did before when it came to Amalickiah. Tiankum in his anger did go forth into the camp of the Lamanites, let himself down over the walls of the city and went forth with a cord from place to place insomuch that he did find the king. And he did cast a javelin at him, which did pierce him near the heart. But behold, the king did awaken his servants before he died insomuch that they did pursue Tiankum and slew him. So a couple of things we got to learn from this. Tiankum His anger was righteous, but it was also unbridled. Remember what happened when he killed Amalekiah. The situation was safer. He had a cool head. He had a plan. He brought a servant with him, and there was no wall to scale. He knew where Amalekiah was. He found him quickly. This time, however, he was angry. He was alone. He had to scale a wall. Uh, Amalekiah took longer to find, and he didn't pierce him near the heart. Like he was close, he was close to Amalekiah. He got him right in the heart that he fell without a groan, and he was able to escape safely. Mm-hmm. This time, he got that javelin near the heart, didn't kill him in- instantly, and Amaron got an opportunity to call his boys to kill Tiankum. And yo, it's just really sad, man, that Tiankum, had he kept a cooler head, they might have been able to strategize a better way to go about ending Amaron's life or about ending this whole war without it having to cost Tiankum's life. This outcome, in my opinion, wasn't necessary. It didn't have to end this way for Tiankum. And look at how they epitaphize, I don't know, what's the word for epitaphizing somebody? Is there a word for that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Eulogized him. It's just very, very terse. It's so cold. Let me just read this real quick. Imagine being such a great hero as Tiankum, having accomplished so much during this war, having been such a man of God, and then look at look at how they eulogized this dude. But behold, he was dead and had gone the way of all the earth. That is not the way for such a dude to be eulogized. That is not the end a man such as Tiankum is supposed to have. What Where I want to connect this real quick is that there are many people like me. I'm definitely one of these people, and I can empathize with Tiankum so hard. I'm angry, like, all the time, to the point where I want to do some very rash things like Tiankum did. And I bet allies want to do some 
rash things as well. A lot of people who are awakening to the awfulness of the situation we find ourselves in often find themselves doing a little bit too much like Tiankum ended up doing. And I said this when we discussed uh, Shiblon's counsel, which was to bridle your passions, including your passions, your righteous anger, and your passion for mm. racial justice. We never want that to get to such a point where it's unbridled and you're doing foolish things that ultimately end up costing you your life or costing the cause some valuable uh, headway. Like, we don't need to be doing things, neither people who are directly affected or people who are indirectly affected, that are ultimately going to set the movement back. So don't be like Tiankum in that regard and act rashly. Be like Tiankum, be a mighty person of God, be somebody who is a leader, be someone who is righteously indignant, but not to the point where you let your anger get the best of you and end up dead or end up setting the cause of the movement back. That is not what we want. And we don't, I don't want my end to be one where people are just like, that's sad, he died, he went the way of all the earth. He was a mighty man, but that's how he went out. I don't want that to be the end of my story. I don't want that to be the end of anybody's story. We have to be mm -hmm. strategic no matter how angry we are yeah that makes a lot of sense and and a good model of this is captain moroni's anger in his epistle where he channeled it into something that would get it done and obviously it got the it got it done and mm -hmm. he mm -hmm. and um pahoran were able to coordinate after that and, mm -hmm. and go on to victory which goes to show you the you know the literary contrast in the book of mormon because we've got strong leadership exemplified by both Moroni and Pahoran in different ways. They were yeah, good leaders in yeah. different ways. And then here we've got Tiankum, and there's some real complexity and nuance in his character. He's mm -hmm. not all good or all bad. Right. Um, but we're a lot of a lot of us are, are trained to read the Book of Mormon and figure out who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And the real I, the real thing is the only good guy in the Book of Mormon is Jesus. Everyone else is is human and mm -hmm. complex. <laughs> um, even the bad guys, they've you know they've they've got their lives and and you know they've they've got people that love them and you know how it is. Mm. Um, and that should shape our work of social justice in this world. How we uh, we should figure out what leadership gets things done and realize that everyone is complex and that we can tap into the best parts of all people and we're going to have to deal with the worst parts of all people no matter which, quote, side they're on. Correct. Yeah. So before we wrap up, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history and the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network or lyceum.fm. That's lyceum.fm and dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And I want to add that some of the stuff that we didn't get to, we had some really good thoughts, but we just didn't have time for them. We're going to put that on a post on Facebook. So make sure you check that out especially if you're going to be teaching or engaging this material anyway, check out what we have, what we're going to put on Facebook. And what are our social media handles? It's BTB LDS for Instagram and Twitter. Mm -hmm. And what is it on Facebook? You just, it's just beyond the block. Yeah, it's just okay. beyond the block. 
I'm pretty sure that's what it is anyway. Yeah. I haven't checked it in a long time. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's that. Also, want to remind you guys about our Glow page and an effort to sustain the work of the show and also improve it in various ways to further the mission of our little project that we call Beyond the Block. Uh, we got that Glow page out there. You can throw some coins at us if you want uh, through the Glow page in the form of a monthly contribution or a one-time contribution. And if you do contribute anything, you get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, included but not limited to access to our collaborator Facebook group where you can interact with us more directly, provide feedback for the show, ideas for the show as well. You can also access our study notes and, uh, and a lot more. So if you don't got coins to throw at us, just share our Glow page on your socials and you can still join our collaborator community. And the Glow page is glow.fm slash beyond the block. That's G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. We'll be sure to put it in the show notes as well. And a quick thank you to our new collaborators as well who joined us this week. I actually didn't get these names. I got a bunch of email addresses that I could derive names from, but I'm not going to attempt that at this point. I'll just have to get your names and uh, put those on blast next week. Uh, finally, we want to take the opportunity to thank our friends Tamara Kemsley for editing the show, as well as uh, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, and also Eden Wen for killing it on our social media. If you guys have been really digging what we've been doing on social media the last little while, thank Eden Wen. She's a rock star, and uh, we really appreciate her. Is there is there anything else I got to put out there, Derek? That's it for this week. Awesome. Then until we meet again next week, thank you guys for listening. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. I'm so excited to see you again next week.